This podcast is presented to you by the School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University in Boiling Springs, North Carolina. The School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University exists to prepare men and women for Christian ministry, namely the work of the Lord's Church. Our degrees, the Master of Divinity and the Doctorate of Ministry, are carefully designed to equip and encourage ministers for the calling that God has placed on their lives. The Master of Divinity offers six concentrations, and the Doctor of Ministry can be obtained in either Christian ministries or pastoral care and counseling. Should God have called you to any number of ministry vocations, or if you aren't quite sure which one yet, you will find a place here at Garden Web where, as our former dean once said, your heart and your head can be friends. The School of Divinity strives to provide a holistic education that stretches the mind, stirs the heart, and prepares the call for Christian ministry. Immerse yourself in the life of the community and visit gardner-web.edu backslash divinity for more information. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Our podcast this week will feature a conversation with Zach Hunt, writer for the Huffington Post, Religion, Red Litter Christians, and many other outlets. Stay tuned to find out how he managed to have the President of the United States block him on Twitter. We also have several exciting episodes to end the year, including John Singletary, who's the Dean of the Baylor School of Social Work and our keynote speaker at ChurchWorks. We also have Hannah McMahon of the New Baptist Covenant and a year in review with our Executive Coordinator, Susie Painter, and Associate Coordinator of Communications and Development, Jeff Hewitt. We are going with a full head of steam into 2018 as we've already booked the first six months of guests. Just to give you a little sampling of January and February, you can hear a conversation with Jason Coker of CBF Together for Hope, along with Faith Morris of the National Civil Rights Museum at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, as they partner together for Civil Rides. It'll be a 500-mile bike trek from Memphis, Tennessee to New Orleans to remember the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's death. Curtis Freeman, the Duke Divinity Professor and author of Undomesticated Descent, will drop by. Michelle Higgins, the Director of Faith for Justice. Emma Green, the Religion and Political Writer for The Atlantic, as well as many other great authors, ministers, and practitioners. Now on to our conversation with Zach Hunt. All right, our guest for this week's podcast is Zach Hunt, a graduate of Yale Divinity School. Zach has applied his vocational calling through writing, speaking, and blogging. He's written for Huffington Post, Christianity Today, World Vision, Red Letter Christians, Relevant Magazine, Ministry Matters, and CWR Magazine. He recently gained the uh, wonderful tag of being blocked on Twitter by Donald J. Trump, the President of the United States. Um, For many, Zach has been recognized for his annual American Jesus Madness bracket. Since 2014, Zach has been pulling together all the different representations of Jesus across this great land allowing them to fight it out to see who will be crowned American Jesus Madness champion. Zach, I am absolutely elated to have a conversation with you today. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, man. I'm really, really glad to be here. Now, you live in Nashville. uh, So I guess my first and most important question of anything that we'll talk about today, what's up with y'all thinking you have the best barbecue in America? Dude, I love my hometown, but that, that, that claim is, is more than a bit embarrassing. Um, I mean, 
I wish it was true. Um, I uh, I adore barbecue. I um, am neurotic to a fault about barbecue. Um, but, but yeah, Nashville um, thinks a little too highly of itself when it comes to barbecue. Um, I mean, I I'm a little biased because um, I lived in Memphis for so many years, and Memphis, you know, obviously has a pretty phenomenal barbecue scene. Um, although. I think my favorite barbecue town is probably Kansas City, just because they do um, they smoke a diversity of things. So, like you know, if you're in Memphis, it's mostly pork. I mean, it's almost exclusively pork, particularly ribs. If you're in North Carolina, you know, it's whole hog um, or you know, pork in general, but especially like whole hog. Um, and then if you're in Texas, it's obviously you know a lot of brisket and sausage. But you know, Kansas City has a mixed bag. Um, nice Nashville is you know mostly pork, um, and there's some not that matters, but there's 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 some decent places here for sure. Um, but yeah, there was an article two or three years ago that came out on some random food website saying that Nashville had the best barbecue, uh, at least in Tennessee. And I was like, this is, this is madness. Um, because like I said, you know, there's a couple of decent places here, but man, I, I don't get that. I mean, don't worry. Like the food scene here is way better. Um, than it was when I was growing up, you know, growing up a nice night on town meant going to like Chili's and ordering, you know, chips and queso. Um, but you know, the things here are great, but yeah, barbecue, we, we, we still have some work to do. Uh, well, next time you walk into Jack's or Martin's, I really hope they're not listening to this podcast and guarantee you'll have a big old loogie in your food. Uh, or re- reading my Facebook page. Cause I definitely might've criticized them. Uh, and had a long conversation with friends who are, who are the Wolf fans. And, you know, I, I need to go back to Jack's. Like, I, Jack's is a national institution, you know, uh, that's been around for, man, 30 or 40 years. Um, but I haven't been there in several years, so I can't, I don't want to say, hey, it's, you know, really good or overrated or anything like that. But I actually have my Martins down the street from my house, which is great. Um, and, I, and I do like the barbecue. Um, they've got a good, you know, dry rub. Um, and I like their sauce a lot. And they're, have you ever had their um, redneck taco? Mm. You ever had that? Thing? It uh, it's delicious. Like it's brilliant. It's like it's pulled pork sitting on top of um, a hoe cake, um, like corn muffin cake essentially, or a corn pancake, um, and it's delicious as long as you leave off coleslaw, which has no business on barbecue. Um, <laughs> you know, and it's good. But like for me, a great barbecue place doesn't just have one. It needs to wow me with the barbecue, and and Martin's is good, but it doesn't wow me. Um, but they also need to have good sides. Um, I mean, it sounds weird because, you know, when you think of barbecue, you just think of meat. But like barbecue shacks, barbecue joints genuinely are, are also known for, you know, having good sides. And like one of those key sides is macaroni and cheese. And their macaroni and cheese is awful. I mean, like I I, I love Pat Martin. I think he's doing great things for barbecue in Nashville. But I would, you know, if we met, we would have to have a come to Jesus talk because it's worse than craft. Like, I mean, I don't know how they sell it to customers. Again, the barbecue meat, you know, is just fine. They're, 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 uh, their mac and cheese is, is kind of embarrassing. Gosh, Sorry. No, I was, I was really hoping to come to Nashville and, and walk around with you to some of these places, but like, I'm afraid people are going to hear this and, and it's not going to be safe <laughs> on the streets. Yeah. What I, I think what I appreciate your, your most is that you have, uh, you're not tribal when it comes to your barbecue. Like, I, I live here in North Carolina. And, you know, yeah. people East North Carolina, Western North Carolina divided, but they think their barbecue is the greatest barbecue in the world. And I've had the privilege of traveling around Kansas City, going to Oklahoma Joe's and Arthur Bryant's and oh, going to various yeah. places in Texas. And 
I, I guess I just enjoy a multiplicity of barbecue and I can't necessarily put my foot down on one particular place. I just don't like the self-righteousness of acting like your brand of barbecue <laughs> is the best. At least be open that, that others have good stuff yeah. as well. Well, no, for sure. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, I, I'm, I certainly have places. I mean, obviously, yeah, I'm opinionated because I just spent five minutes bashing macaroni and cheese. <laughs> um, but, but um, you know, and like, like you said, Oklahoma Joe's or Candy City Joe's now, like, their Z-Man is the best sandwich that's ever been created by the hand of man, and I will fight anyone who says otherwise. I mean, it is. It's perfection, you know, in a sandwich. I mean, and for me, that's the best barbecue place in the world. But like you said, like there's Arthur Bryant's and it's great. I'm dying to go to, uh, to make the pilgrimage down to Franklin barbecue, um, in Austin, which actually just burned, uh, uh, caught on fire a couple of weeks ago. Their smoke pit did. Um, so they're out of commission for a little while, but once they open, I'm more than willing to get in line at seven o'clock in the morning and, and wait for his brisket. But yeah, I, I'm with you. Like, you know, there's, there, there are some ethics, um, of, or some barbecue, uh, traditions that I'm not a fan of, like Memphis, for example. I love Memphis barbecue. I hate that they put uh, coleslaw on their barbecue sandwiches in there. Um, I love whole hawk barbecue, um, you know, barbecue sandwiches. And you know, I, I'm definitely a purist in the sense of I think great barbecue is doesn't need sauce, but I, I appreciate a good sauce. I love you know East Carolina uh, vinegar-based sauces, but all oh, that mustard stuff in South Carolina. I'm sorry. I, I just, I, I can't do it. Yeah. Um, uh, you're with me there. Well, well, I think two things our listeners can learn from this podcast already is number one, I really hope you're not listening to this at lunchtime. Uh, and number two <laughs> is that Zach and I should probably get uh, 10% off of whatever barbecue place they end up going uh, from the restaurant just because, you know, we've, we've endorsed whatever they're selling today. All right. So we know you love barbecue. Uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Um, really, that's about it. That's my entire life right now is barbecue. Um, <laughs> kind of sad, <laughs> but uh, no. Um, like I like I said, I'm son of the south. Uh, you know, grew up in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. Um, loved Tennessee. Uh, lived here almost all of my life. Um, went to college at Trebekah Nazarene University. Um, grew up uh, in the Church of the Nazarene, um, which is a uh, Wesleyan denomination, we broke off um, of the Methodist Church uh, in the early 20th century. Um, we were founded in 1908, and uh, wow, this is embarrassing. I can see the cover of our history book, and I have multiple degrees in Nazarene schools. And where were we founded? Pilot Point, Texas. That was really embarrassing. Um, we were founded in Pilot Point, Texas by a bunch of holiness folks. Um, it came out of Methodist tradition and some Pentecostal traditions, um, though we are not a Pentecostal tradition. Um, we were holiness folks, and uh, we love Jesus. But, but yeah, I grew up Nazarene um, and went to a Nazarene school and met my Nazarene wife there. Um, she's from Boston, but she moved down and came down with her sister to go to Tureka. And uh, we uh, met my junior year uh, and got married after she graduated. Um she ended up going to med school in Memphis at UT Memphis, and I followed her because we were married, and that's what you do. And uh, that was an obvious statement. I don't know why I made that. Um, but she went to UT, and I became a youth pastor um, in, uh, at a Methodist church down there for uh, five years and really enjoyed it. Um, Memphis uh, has phenomenal food. Um, obviously, we, like, we just said they've got amazing barbecue, but they also have 
um, the best fried chicken on the planet at Gus's Fried Chicken. Uh, I don't know why I'm giving commercials for you, but um, Gus's Fried Chicken on Front Street, if you're ever in Memphis um, and you don't go to Memphis, then you've just wasted your time. It is phenomenal. Um, anyway, um, I went to Memphis, put on a bunch of weight, obviously, because all I did there was eat. And um, she uh, finished med school, and we thought we were headed to uh, South Carolina after I just made fun of them. Uh, we thought we were headed to Greenville, South Carolina for residency, but on Match Day, which is the day all med school students open up an envelope at the same time and find out where a computer matched them to for residency, uh, she opened up the letter and found out we were moving to Connecticut. Um, she was going to do her residency program at uh, UConn to be an OBGYN. Um, and so we got ready and moved a uh, thousand miles away from all of our friends and family to the great white North. And uh, we were there for, for four years, um, had a good time, had two kids. Um, one of them is about to turn two and the other will turn four in November. Um, but she had a great time, went through, uh, went through the program. I, uh, got to go to Yale uh, for divinity school, did a master's in history of Christianity. Um, also got, Oh, wow, I skipped this. Um, got ordained um, right before we left. But um, uh, yeah, we we had a good time up there. And then when it was time to to figure out what we wanted to do next, we were both eager to, to move back home um, where it was warm and where there wasn't snow on the ground for six months of the year and where the food was good and the taxes weren't quite so high. And most importantly, where we had um, free childcare because having children and no child care is, is not a great uh, situation. So we moved back to Nashville about a year ago um, at the risk of being Debbie Downer. About that time, I uh, also got diagnosed with stage two Hodgkin's lymphoma um, and uh, battled that for a few months. And uh, thanks to some great doctors at University of Connecticut in uh, Hartford and um, Vanderbilt Hospital, I am now in remission, um, have been for about a year now, which is great. Um, and yeah, we're back home, settled in. Kids just started school, um, and uh, I spend most of my time changing diapers um, or uh, raising hell on the internet. So, um, <laughs> most of my life these days. Well, anybody who's changed one messy diaper, you know, just would immediately raise hell after that, anyway. So uh, it's understandable. <laughs> yeah, my uh, my youngest can um, can really fill them up. Well, just in the last few months, um, you've written about national idolatry, uh, hypocrisy mm-hmm. of American Christians ignoring the call of Jesus to love our immigrant neighbors, climate change, your personal battle with cancer, as you were just sharing, and a streaker in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, you have this profound ability to address an issue with precise theological perspective, and it's grounded in the biblical narrative and the way of Jesus. Let's talk about your calling to write theologically? Wow. That's a good, good question. Um, you know, I suppose for me, uh, writing is, is a form of ministry. I, you know, I feel called above all to preach the gospel. And right now I'm not serving full time in a church. Um, and so I don't have that opportunity to preach in the traditional way uh, every Sunday, but I can still preach through my words, you know, online and reach an audience that, you know, I couldn't um, in a standard church, um, which is, you know, which is great too. Um, I, you know, and I certainly miss, I'm not miss because I still preach. And if you're out there, I would love to come preach at your church. Um, but 
Um, but yeah, writing kind of found me. I, I, it's not something that I, you know, I didn't grow up thinking I'm going to be a writer one day. And even, you know, the past few years or when I started blogging it, it wasn't something that I really set out to make career seems like a generous term because I think you have to actually make money for it to be a career. Um, but I, you know, I, I felt called to ministry in, in middle school, high school. Um, I still have a very vivid memory of going to this youth get together that our district was having in Clarksville, Tennessee. And there was a concert, um, by a group called Brian White and justice, which is just a wonderful nineties contemporary Christian band name. Um, and, uh, I don't remember what was said that night, but I definitely felt a, a pretty clear call to ministry, um, of, of some sort that, that God was calling me and, you know, went down to the altar and prayed with my youth pastor. And, and that was kind of about it for a while. Um, nothing, you know, it wasn't, I didn't wake up the next day and like moved to Africa become a missionary or, you know, enroll in seminary. Um, you know, I just kind of it was just something that kind of percolated in the back of my mind. I always thought, okay, I'm going to go into ministry in some form or fashion. Um, but I didn't really know what. Um, and then, you know, I, I gravitated towards youth ministry. And, you know, honestly, probably part of that was because I was eight, you know, 16, 17, 18 years old. And I loved the youth group. And so I was like, man, this would be great to do. So I went to Trevecca and majored in religion. And my first class was biblical exegesis at 730 in the morning. And I hated it. Um, I was expecting, you know, my religion program to be, you know, just like Sunday school 2.0. And, you know, I kicked butt in Sunday school and I was like, man, I'm going to own this. And it's going to be great. And it was, it kicked my butt, um, you know, exegesis and Greek and theology and all that stuff was really overwhelming. And, you know, I went through a time, for at least a year, maybe two or three, where, you know, I wanted nothing to do with ministry. I didn't want to go to church. I didn't want to, I definitely didn't want to turn in another Greek paper. Um, you know, I, I actually took on a second major and thought, hey, I'm going to go be a lawyer because, you know, I saw a few good men and really liked that and thought, hey, if I like this movie, I should just move into my life's work. Um, and, you know, part of me still, you know, I can enjoy being a lawyer because I like to argue. But, um, you know, I, I still kind of had that calling in the back of my mind and still felt that that's where I should be. But, you know, it took me a while and to, to kind of come to terms with that. And it, and it actually took a um, another youth pastor uh, intervening, and he stopped and asked me if I wanted to be part of this summer ministry team that the university had that essentially traveled around to uh, summer camps for teens in the summer, and they represented the school, and so, you know, it's kind of an admissions recruitment thing, but our primary tasks were to, to lead recreation and, and help lead worship um, during the services, and, and I got involved in that and really loved it and ended up becoming a, a confirmation um, for me that, you know, this is really what I wanted to do, and so I got my local minister's license and headed down the path of ordination in the church in Nazarene. Um, ended up a youth pastor in the Methodist church. Uh, Cause there's, you know, I'm sure you guys have this with cooperative Baptists. Um, you know, we're not a huge denomination and there's a finite amount of Nazarene churches out there. And uh, when we moved to Memphis, both of them had a youth pastor, uh, but God opened the door for me to be at a, a great uh, United Methodist church. And, um, you know, I loved it. I loved uh, working with teenagers. I loved teaching and I loved preaching uh, it was a great leadership, great pastor there, um, and associate pastors that that were uh, great teachers and mentors for me. Um, and after that, I, you know, the the teaching part is something that's always really um, been central to my call. I think um, 
And so I, while I was there, I did a, a master's in theological studies, thinking I wanted to teach theology. And when it came time, like I said, for my wife to do residency, we tried to line it up where uh, I could go back to school and you know she could do a residency. And the thought would was that I would go on to teach and be a professor somewhere. So I um, applied and was lucky enough to get into Yale Divinity School and did a master's there um, in history of Christianity. And after two years, realized that, you know, a uh, PhD route may not be the route for me, um, at least at this moment. It just, you know, having to write a dissertation and go to seminars and trap myself and, you know, an archive and a library for five or six years is just something that, that I was not ready to do um, at that point. But in that sort of mess of, do I want to be a youth pastor? Do I want to be a professor? Do I want to go in ministry? Um, I started to blog with uh, another youth pastor friend of mine. Um, one of my great spiritual gifts is procrastination. And um, I, I feel like I really excel at that. And um, you know, the internet is there to really help you build that spiritual gift um, and take it to, to places. And so he and I would chat on Google Talk. And um, you know, obviously we were just chatting about ministry stuff and creating wonderful programming. But when we weren't doing that, we were sharing um, you know, funny memes or stories or videos um, you know, just with each other. And then at some point we decided, hey, the world needs to share uh, in this humor with us because clearly we're really funny guys because we make each other laugh and therefore we'll make everybody laugh. And so we created this blog called The American Jesus. And, you know, originally it was you know, just a, a storehouse of, hey, here's this funny video, here's this funny picture, here's this funny news story. Um, and it all revolved around the issue of, of American Christianity and, and how Americanism, you know, American ideology, American politics, you know, has become wedded to Christianity in, in good ways and obviously not so good ways. And so we shared mostly funny stuff, but, you know, occasionally we would write um, original posts and, uh, you know, stuff that, that sometimes was funny, but, you know, try to be a little serious and insightful. And, and you know, after a year, maybe two, you know, it, it kind of became apparent that, hey, you know, when I share my own stuff, when I share, you know, original post instead of a you know a funny Carmen video from the 90s where he's rapping about Satan um, you know it, it gets more traffic and, and more so than just gets more traffic it's more fulfilling and it it lines up with what I want to do and it feels like it's worthwhile and, um, my youth pastor friend ended up getting a real job um, as a pastor and uh, so he kind of stepped away from the blog and, and I kept writing and um, you know going to Yale it was great because I could just copy and paste my notes from class and, and the blog material um, but yeah, over a couple of years, it, 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 if I began writing more, it, it, I began found my voice, and, and it really became a ministry outlet for me. Um, in the sense of, you know, I was able to 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 share the gospel, to to share the knowledge I learned from the seminary with people in a way that was um, easy to digest, um, easy to access, and easy to understand. Uh, you know, and and it's opened doors for me to to speak and preach, you know, around the world, um, really. And, uh, it, it's been great, but again, yeah, it's, it's not something that I sought out. It's something that kind of, I don't know, like, I don't want to call it a God thing. I think that feels a little presumptuous for me, but you know, it, it, it just, it was a door that opened and, and I follow through and it's, it's really been a, it's been an interesting ride, but it's opened up uh, more doors and, and been a really, um, great experience. And, and open up some opportunities to to preach the gospel that I, I never thought I'd get. So it's it's uh it's been interesting.
That's for sure. Well, two things you said that really, um, I, th- I think I need to to push back on. Uh, number one is, you know, I can't find anything hilarious about Carmen from the seventies and eighties. I mean, that man <laughs> truly rocked an Afro in a way that, that no other person could. Uh, and the other thing, it, it's a bit ironic that, you, you know, you avoided the PhD route, but in the last couple of years, you know, as I've followed your work, you've written five dissertations, you know, you, <laughs> you've yeah. kind of gone and, and done all the writing that, that you ran from, um, you know, but you, yeah. you write on such a variety of, of topics. Where, where do you get your creativity? Where do you get your courage to write on some of these things? That's an interesting question. Um, you know, some of it is passion, you know, there's just things I, you know, I write about things that are passionate about. And at the moment, my passions happen to line up with the zeitgeist, you know, of society. And so that, that helps, but, you know, I'm acutely aware of the fact that I have, I'm in a position that a lot of people, particularly people who are in full-time ministry are not, um, I'm not in a, a church um, at the moment. You know, I'm, I'm not employed by a particular company at the moment. Um, you know, I'm a stay-at-home dad. I take my kids to school and, you know, my wife is, is the breadwinner of our family. And as a doctor, she always will be. Um, and so, like, I don't, you know, I don't have to worry about taking off a church board or, or ostracizing congregation members or, or making the boss mad. And so, you know, I have a, a freedom to write, um, you know, and to be you know, pretty honest with, with what I, um, want to say. I mean, I have, you know, great pastor who's supportive and great, you know, leadership on our district, um, that's been very supportive, um, you know, specifically about, you know, my writing, my blog and been very encouraging. Um, but you know, I, I would be naive to, and, and disingenuous not to acknowledge that. Um, I think that's really important, especially if people are out there are thinking about blogging or getting into, um, blogging. I mean, obviously I don't write about controversial stuff, you know, faith and politics, you know, don't really aggravate anybody. Um, people are like, Oh sure. You know, we're just going to agree to disagree. So it's not very controversial stuff, <laughs> but if you were going to write about controversial stuff, um, you know, it, I think that there, there's an important level of like self-awareness of your position, um, in the sense of, you know, you have to know, um, what you're risking and what you're willing to sacrifice. Um, and I say that because, you know, I've definitely, you know, there's been lost friendships, strained friendships, um, job opportunities that, you know, have not, you know, worked out. Um, you know, and I can't hide, you know, if you Google my name, plenty of my stuff comes out. I've been blogging for almost 10 years now. Um, you know, and so it's when you put yourself out there, um, you know, it, there's there's good and bad that comes with it. Um, but, you know, I think having this opportunity that I do is something that, again, not calling it a gift from God, but like, it's a, it's a gift in the sense of it's an opportunity to, to boldly say things that, that I feel led to say that I feel called to say that, that I wouldn't, um, otherwise. And so, you know, it's a passion, you know, um, for sure that's where it comes from. And, you know, again, like I've got the opportunity and I feel like if I have this opportunity then maybe God gave it to me and, and I should use it. Um, to the best of my ability. Um, you know, and I don't do that always. I mean, I certainly stumble and, write things that I regret or, you know, say things that don't make sense or, or, or whatever. Um, but, but yeah, I, you know, I've got an opportunity to be free and, and unbound by, you know, the, the, the constraints of a typical job. And, and so that, that, you know, I think frees me up to, uh, 
create imaginary tournaments to pit John Piper against Rob Bell and, you know, Rob Bell sunglasses against the messenger or whatever. So does that, does that make sense? Um, yeah, I, and you I, raise, I don't want to sound presumptuous. No, you, you raise an interesting point um, because, you know, the knock on Rob Bell by some um, was that he can say what he wants to say because um, yeah. he doesn't have a local congregation to be accountable to, which, you know, I I don't necessarily agree with that statement fully. You know, he was writing um, what many would call provocative things, you know, while he was serving as a senior pastor at church. But but what are your thoughts on, on you know, how do you balance uh, writing and being in church community together with others? That That's a really great question because I, I think that's a really important thing and something I try to be acutely aware of, you know, because I don't, the whole like, hey, I've got this freedom to say things that I you know want to say or that I think need to be said. Um, you know, this is something that, like I said, I don't want to take it for granted, but I also want to balance that with, you know, accountability. And I was having a conversation with another blogger, um, I mean, a couple of weeks ago, and she was one asking too, like, you know, how do you deal with, how do I deal with, you know, the issues of like accountability because it's it's important, you know, because you know otherwise you're just in a position where, hey. Uh, God told me this, and so I'm right, and you can't tell me any different. And you know that's certainly not Christianity. Um, you know that's not healthy. Um, and so, you know, and I, for us, like for me, accountability is really important. But where you're getting your accountability accountability from is is just as important. And so, like you know, there's plenty of people. The internet police is there are there. You know, whether you want them or not, to tell you when you're wrong or when they think you're wrong and why you've done this, that, and the other, or you know, condemn you to hell for having the wrong opinions. Um, and so I, I think it's really important. I think this is where like the local community, like you said, comes in having a good relationship with people in real life. I mean, not, I mean, the internet has become part of our real life, um, but having mentors, whether those are professors or Sunday school teachers or aunts or uncles or, or whoever, you know, for me, the way I try to maintain accountability is, is keeping a a close, usually small circle of people that that I trust to be honest with me, that I trust um, are responding to these big issues that I'm uh, writing about or talking about in a reflective way. In the, and by that I mean that they're not just shooting off their mouth or they're not just, you know, it isn't just, hey, I feel this way, but, you know, they've done the research they've done, the study they've, you know, they know the people involved, you know, they're friends with immigrants, they work in, you know, the homeless community or, or whatever it is, um, you know, and those are the people that I, I try to listen to the most. And, and that may sound like self-serving in the sense of, hey, I picked my own, you know, judge and jury. And so they're just going to be, you know, self-affirming, but that's definitely not the case. You know, um, <laughs> I've got friends who have no problem, you know, uh, telling me when they think I'm wrong and, and uh, you know, texting me or calling me or or <laughs> running to me at church saying, "Hey, this was ridiculous," or or whatever, and you know, and that's good. Um, and and you know, I I value that a lot, and it opens up you know conversations two ways. You know, for me to you know to push back and defend myself, but also you know, to, hey, you know, kind of share and and learn from each other. Um, you know, and so I think accountability is deeply important. But it's it's kind of like I mean it's dependent upon trust you know and trust is something that's earned and so I think you know when you get into something like this or when you get in you know just to regular traditional ministry you know with preaching you know having 
for me, you know, I've always had this group. I mean, like the guy I was talking about before, there's two or three others that, you know, we've got like a, a face, a private Facebook group, for example, that's been really helpful where, you know, they're pastors and we're able to get together and, you know, vent or share ideas or, you know, just talk about life. Um, you know, and there's, there can be accountability in that context because we trust each other, um, you know, because um, we're going through similar things. I mean, they may not be writing blogs or, you know, getting blocked by the president, you know, but they've got struggles. You know, they're, they're trying to, they're in a much tougher situation than I am because they're trying to say what they feel God is leading them to say. And if it angers too many of the right people, they may be out of a job, um, you know? And so, I'm able to encourage them and they're able to keep me accountable and, and vice versa. Um, yeah. Well, it's just, it's a tough question, you know, to answer um, because I'm trying, like I'm, I'm acutely aware of the fact that I can say the things that I say because I don't have some of that traditional accountability. Um, but I get it in other ways. I've lost a book deal because of things that I've said on the internet, um, you know, and you know, that's, you know, it's not as big of an income as a normal salary, but you know, um, it, it certainly hurts and you know has consequences. Um, it's, but you know, I don't want to sound like, hey, you should just brush off the shackles of accountability and do whatever you want and you know, screw the world. But like, you know, that balancing that is really important to me. And but articulating how that works is is definitely tricky. Well. I, I- I'm sure you're uh, very aware um, because it's not a hidden fact that we live in a highly divisive time, politically speaking. Um, what? <laughs> you know, most most Protestant traditions subscribe to the belief of separation of church and state, which has often sure. led to much debate over what the church should and should not say when it comes to politicians and policies. But at the same time, we're called to live in the way of Jesus. And biblically speaking, Jesus' message and ministry was highly politically, socially, and religiously charged. And yeah. many have made the argument that Jesus was condemned and executed as a political and social criminal. Um, so yeah. the difficult question is, how do we, as Jesus followers in the 21st century, engage in dialogue and action around things that, that go against the way of Jesus? And you've been writing quite profusely, I might add, for the last four years around these matters. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, I think it's a mistake to think that the gospel isn't political. Um, Because, and I think that we make that mistake because of our concept of politics being, you know, this modern Republican-Democrat dichotomy, um, you know, or political parties or whatever, as opposed to like politics being about society and how society is shaped and how society functions and things like that. And in that sense, the gospel is fundamentally, I mean, fundamentally political because it's about society. I mean, that's what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is about how we will live our lives, how it will be structured. And like you said, Jesus was executed um, not because he worked on Sunday or because he broke dietary laws. Jesus was executed because he called, you know, because he was the king of the Jews. I mean, that's what they wrote in three different languages um, on a, on a, piece of wood above his head. Um, he wasn't killed by the Pharisees or the Sadducees. He was executed by the state for, for insurrection. Um, you know, and I think that's something we often overlook because we get so focused on the salvific aspect of the cross, which obviously we should be focused because that's, you know, the primary thing. But, you know, particularly in American Christianity and evangelicalism and really just Protestantism in general, you know, our understanding of salvation is so wrapped up in sola fide. 
in this and in this idea of this personal relationship with God that salvation becomes exhausted by our intellectual ascent. And so that I'm saved because I went down to an altar one day and and said uh, you know the sinner's prayer and asked for forgiveness and I believe that Jesus is Lord. But you know, like Paul says, um, even the I think Paul this might be embarrassing, it might have been Peter. Um, you know, even the demons believe you know that Jesus is Lord and shudder. You know, the question is whether or not we're going to live. Um, as if Jesus is Lord. And that's where the issue of politics and the faith comes in. Um, it, it's not about what political party you're going to line up with or you know, what trade policies you're going to um, you know, support, things like that, like in that political sense, not necessarily at least. Um, but it's how are you going to live um, as if Jesus is Lord? You know? And for me, that question um, of, of how does the faith and politics line up is found I mean, in the Gospels. I mean, it's found in, in the Sermon on the Mount in particular, but especially um, Matthew 25. You know, if you follow my blog, I, 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 I cite Matthew 25 ad nauseum, and I'm sure, you know, uh, drives my readers nuts. But for me, I mean, that's the, that's the heart of the Gospel because it's the one place in any of the Gospels where Jesus lays out exactly um, what is going to happen on Judgment Day. Um, it, it's the one place where he lays out specifically, this is how I'm going to separate the sheep and the goats and who goes to eternal life and who, who doesn't. And, and it's not, you know, Jesus staying there with a list checking off who went down to the altar. And it's not him asking whether or not you affirmed, you know, these orthodox positions. He's not staying there saying, did you, you know, from the virgin birth, do you believe in the Trinity? What are your thoughts on penal substitution theory? You know, it's, I was hungry. Did you feed me? I was thirsty. Did you give me something to drink? I was naked. Did you clothe me? I was a stranger. Did you welcome me in? I was sick. Did you care for me? And all of those questions are deeply political. I mean, look no further than the, the health care debate. I mean, it's a question about whether or not we will care for the sick or look at the question of you know, immigrants and refugees. I mean, th- these aren't just political questions for Christians. They're, they're fundamental questions of faith because our salvation depends upon it. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's not about aligning with a party or, or, um, you know, voting in particular way on the ballot. It, it, it's about Hirewas said that Stanley Hirewas, the um, ethics theologian from from Duke, um, said that it's the role of the church to be the church in and for the world. And so, what, what I think he means by that is it's to be the hands and feet of Jesus. I mean, to be the church is to be the body of Christ. And so, you know, we are called to live that life out of caring for the least of these, of defending the oppressed. Um, you know, of standing up for justice. I mean, if you look through the, the prophets, especially the minor prophets, but the major ones like Isaiah, Isaiah opens up, um, Isaiah 1 opens up with this very dramatic um, denouncement from God where he says, you know, when you pray, I'm not going to listen. Your your sacrifices and your incense, are, they're an abomination. Um, there's blood on your hands. And so he says, you know, turn from your wicked ways. He's like, seek justice, uh, defend the oppressed, uh, you know, defend the widow, care for care for the least of these. And, it's, and this is what Jesus picks up on. And and to me, that's what our calling is. And, and if that overlaps in politics, then we need to, to speak up. Like in the healthcare debate, if, if, if our call is to care for the sick, then we need to make sure that the sick are being cared for. And the reality is the church cannot do that by ourselves. Um, we do not have the money. We do not have the resources. Um, we can create hospitals. The Catholic Church does a, you know, does a great job of that. But like on our own, you know, we, we can't in poverty, um, you know, we can't educate everyone, you know, we can't, um, you know, do all the research necessary, um, for people like me to not die from cancer. Um, and so 
you know, it, for me, it's, it's, it's the answer to that question is obviously complicated. Um, but it's just about focusing on being like Jesus. And when these issues come up, we support whoever it is, whether they're Republican, Democrat, independent, Green Party, whatever, you know, support the causes that Jesus would 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 support, even if they run counter to our political ideology or our political party. And if and if they do run counter to our political ideology and political party, then we need to stop and do some self-reflection and ask us and ask, you know, who really is Lord of our lives and who who are we really trusting with our future and with our, with our lives? Um, you know, is it this political system and capitalism and our federalism or, or whatever ism um, that you want, or, or are we t- really totally sold out to Jesus like we sing about on Sunday mornings? Um, you know, and, and it, so it's, it's cliche to say that the intersection of faith and politics is, is living like Jesus. Um, but, you know, I, I think it starts with an acknowledgement that the gospel is inherently political in the sense that it calls us to care for our neighbors, which is society, and it, and it gives us a particular framework for how to shape society in the sense of, um, you know, the first or last, and, and the needs are to be loved, and the poor are blessed. Now, that doesn't mean we're looking for a theocracy. Um, but rather, we're the city on a hill. You know, we're the salt of the earth. I mean, we're the light of the world. We we are called to embody that. And so, I think maybe the question is that we should ask ourselves: Is it when we engage in politics, you know, are we speaking up for the kingdom of God? Are we we embodying the kingdom that Jesus did that Jesus called us to embody, um, or not? I mean, it's the cliche: What would Jesus do? Um, but but it really is what what would Jesus do? And so, so yeah, it, there's there's no easy answer, I and mean, people aren't always going to agree on what Jesus would do or agree on how the kingdom of God is is established on earth as it is in heaven. Um, but I think it begins, maybe ends, but but definitely begins with with those sort of simple questions of, I was hungry, did you feed me? I was sick, did you care for me? I was a stranger, did you welcome me in? Because if we're not doing those things regardless of, of who's helping us doing them or, or where we're doing them or how we're doing them. But if we're not doing them, then we're not, we're not serving Jesus because he was blunt and explicit that whatever, no qualifications on whether or not it was the government helping us or we did it on our own or there was a church, but whatever we do for the least of these or whatever we don't do, we do or don't do for Jesus. And so for me, that, that question of, of how our faith relates to politics comes back to those sets of questions. Um, you know, and then there's, uh, you know, the details of, you know, particular policies on the state or federal level, you know, those things, you know, kind of fall under that, but, you know, there's that set of questions and it's really the ultimate question of the greatest commandment of love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, and your mind and your neighbors, yourself. And, and those questions are flow out of that. And then our politics flow out of that. Does that, does that make sense? I know that was a little bit of rambling, but, um, I just yeah, can't I'm believe you, uh, you just made that so centered on Jesus and like the words and teachings of Jesus. Like, I don't know where you get the justification of this, except um, the gospels proclaim this, this message and action of the kingdom. It's, it, it seems to go hand in hand, <laughs> but I think part of it, uh, and obviously we don't have um, a lot of time to talk about this, but I think part of it is the, um, the American evangelical message 
um, has been so centered for 150 years uh, around personal salvation that while that is, I'm not saying that's not important, it, it is limiting because what it has done is it's, it's turned, um, in our day and age, it's turned uh, the church into a, a commodity uh, where uh, the choice of a church is all about the individual, uh, their family, their programs, the, the worship. Um, it, is, it has negated the necessity of community for our faith journey. And it has also um, taken the command of Jesus to not only love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, um, but to love your neighbor as yourself. It's taken that and has completely negated that last part. Um, where when you seem to find, as you just did, taking the very core teachings and principles and parables of Jesus and saying, it is about your love for others. It's about the way that you care for others or the way you chose not to. It seems so strange that American evangelicals, um, many have disconnected that element of their journey with Christ for the essential aspect of their faith journey. Exactly. You know, and it's, you know, it's kind of fitting, um, you know, that we're, (laughs) <laughs> that we are where we are and it's the 500th anniversary of the reformation next month. Um, you know, Luther plays obviously a pivotal role in Christian history. And this, this issue of, uh, of salvation by faith alone is, is so important, um, you know, in, in Protestant theology, but I think even evangelicalism or American Christianity in general has shown that you can take that too far. Um, you know, I, Luther was famous, um, for bashing the book of James and calling it a gospel of straw because James says in chapter two, do you think that you were saved by faith alone? By no means, you know, and, and that's not, you know, this random fringe apostle. I mean, this is Jesus. He's just citing Matthew 25 that, you know, yay, you had faith, but even the demons had faith. I was hungry. Did you feed me? I was thirsty. Did you give me something to drink? And I think that, you know, we, like you said, I think it's a great word. I turned religion into a commodity. Um, and the self-serving one at that, you know, we, it's, you know, salvation has become a factory line. You know, you go down to the altar, you get the stamp approval and on your way you're saved. And that's all you have to worry about because we've distilled, you know, Christianity becomes a zero sum equation. You know, it's, are you saved or are you not? And nothing else really matters because faith alone. And yet here's Jesus saying that is not true. That, that faith is faithfulness. That faith is a way of life, that it is not just, a list of ideas, and it's not a profession of faith. It's not intellectual sin. To be faithful means to be a follower of Jesus. And the Gospels, if they're not clear on anything else, it's that being a follower of Jesus is a particular way of life. But like you said, we've we've turned it into the self-serving commodity where it's all about the individual. It's all about you know you feeling good about yourself, all about you feeling like you're you know, saved all, you know, it's all about you, 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 and you. And so we've built these churches that become temples to the self in the sense that they're all built around, you know, um, not to throw out the term seeker sensitive because not everybody would identify that, but they are in the sense of we've got all these programs, you know, and all of these, um, you know, buildings and, you know, rooms and, and programs, um, but they're all designed to meet, the needs of the individual like churchgoer and, and sort of like keep them happy and, and make them seem fulfilled. And that's created two huge problems. You know, one, it's destroyed our theology in the sense of it's made, like you said, Christianity into a commodity um, that whoever's got the best buildings, whoever's got the best 
um, you know, most, most charismatic speakers, whoever's got the, the best, coolest programs and technology and stuff is, is going to win because they're going to get the most customers. But on the other end of it, all of these buildings and technology, um, you know, and programmings have crippled the church under a mountain um, of debt and have rendered the church or have neutered the church of its you know, prophetic calling. I mean, churches, by and large, like we were talking about before, you know, I can go out and speak and say things that, you know, maybe are con- controversial or bold because I've got the freedom to do that, you know, but most of our churches don't. Like my pastors and friends that, you know, have these, like I said, the accountability groups or private Facebook groups with that, that behind the scenes will say, you know, certain things, you know, functionally can't. Some of them still do, God bless them. Um, but a lot of our churches can't because, They've got to pay the bills. And if they anger too many people, the offering plate goes empty. And if the offering plate goes empty, they can't afford to pay for the electricity bill, you know, or they can't afford to pay the mortgage. And they can't afford to keep funding all of these programs. And if you don't have all these programs and you don't have these cool buildings and all this fancy technology, then people just go down the street to another church that does have it. And so it's, you know, churches end up cannibalizing themselves. But yeah, it's, the consumerization or the commodification of the faith and the individualization of the faith have been the most destructive things that I can think of. Two of the most least. I mean, there's obviously abhorrent things that the church has done, but two of the most destructive things in the last millennium. I mean, it's not just in the, in the history of the church because, you know, we've turned a faith that was all about denial of self into affirmation of self. And we turned this gospel that was this prophetic good news that the poor are blessed and the imprisoned have been set free into this, hey, you're okay, I'm okay. Let's you know talk about our family. And, and the church, particularly in this moment in time, like we were talking before about how divisive this moment is of, of how do these, these folks that are you know, losing their health care or these folks who are um, being turned away at the borders or these folks who are drowning with their kids in the sea because we won't accept the stranger. And this is a moment when the church should be, you know, the church. And this is our calling to be prophetic, to stand up and defend the oppressed and stand up for the widow and welcome the orphan and the stranger. And most of us can't do it because we've got to keep the doors open and we've got to, you know, pay the electricity bill and, and we've got to keep people happy and we can't step on too many toes because you step on toes, those feet walk out the door and with them, you know, goes there, uh, you know, goes there, goes their money. And, and, and that sounds, you know, I know that sounds really cynical and, and I definitely don't mean it as, as judgmental way. And we've got plenty of pastors who are bold and preach the gospel anyway. Um, but I think it's a serious problem in the church that, that most of us, um, that we don't like to talk about, um, that we don't, really give a lot of thought to um, because we love our programs so much. You know, we, we love those elaborate things for our kids and our teenagers. And, and I was part of that. I was a youth pastor. I mean, it was my job to design these programs that are attractive and fun and exciting. But the reality is the more we build that stuff up, the more we invest in buildings, you know, to, to keep everybody entertained and, and happy, the more we pour our money into things that ultimately don't really matter, the more we constrain ourselves, the more we, keep ourselves from being able to take prophetic stands because prophetic stands are divisive and prophetic stands make people decide if they're going to choose the narrow way or the wide way, whether or not they're going to keep faithful to Jesus or faithful to what makes them comfortable. And prophetic stands cost money. And, and that's a terrifying thing. And, and I, I don't know how to fix it. I don't know. I mean, there's certainly not an easy answer, 
But I think the American church in particular um, needs to have, we need to have serious conversations about how we spend our money. Um, it's like Shane Claiborne is, you know, he's made in cat coinage, but he says it all the time, budgets or moral documents. And right now the, the budgets that most of our churches have are, are really damning because they keep us from caring for the poor and the least of these, and they keep us from, from proclaiming the gospel. I think you've given our listeners a lot of um, practical tools to begin to think about, at least some theological insight to to begin to chew on these things in their local congregation. Um, it's good stuff, Zach. Um, I, I can't let you go without asking this question. Um, how does one get blocked on Twitter by Donald J. Trump? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I, uh, you know, I worked hard at it. It was, um, you know, a lot of long sleepy nights of, of trying to come up with the perfect tweet and, and it, you know, it didn't work. <laughs> that, that's the funny thing is that, you know, I, I push back a lot harder on a lot more serious issues. It was a lot more critical, um, on things that really mattered and, you know, never got the attention of the president. Um, the tweet that I think did it, who I know for sure, it was this issue. He had um, tweeted out this slideshow of him being president at things like, you know, at, at, um, at military bases or at openings of parks. I mean, obviously he hasn't gone to those, but, you know, all those sort of like quintessential photo ops the president does. And so it was a slideshow of all these things. And it was set to um, Lee Greenwood, God bless the USA, you know, that, that epic. Patriots on, and it was terrible. I mean, not like it's not. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with it, but like, I mean, the the way it was put together was just was really bad. Um, I mean, and it looked like something that a third grader would do, literally. I mean, not just like pejoratively that I'm, you know, critiquing or poking fun. I mean, it literally looked like something that that was made by somebody on who just you know discovered, wow, Windows Movie Maker. This is the most amazing thing ever, and. Um, <laughs> And so, which is crazy because his, he's got a social media guy who makes $180,000 a year to produce content like that. Um, and I guess he's just finding it from random people on the internet. So anyway, he, he tweeted it out and I retweeted him and said, you know, we, we finally have a definite um, impeachable offense as this is a clear violation of child labor laws as it was obviously made by a third grader. <laughs> and um, he did not like that. Um, and uh, I was summarily blocked by the president of the United States, who clearly had way too much time on his hands and is way more of a, uh, what's the word, snowflake um, than he would like to admit. But uh, yeah, it, it's, it's pretty wild. Um, it's uh, definitely, <laughs> it's just, it's bizarre. You know, I mean, the idea that like the president of the United States read my tweet and was mad enough um, <laughs> to respond is bizarre, but you know, it's it's allowed me to fight the resistance or whatever you want to call it more. Um, you know, giving me a bigger platform to do that. I got interviewed by the Boston Globe about it a few weeks ago and ended up on the front page uh, of the Globe, which was crazy, and which is double crazy because um, he has his PR or part of his staff goes through every uh, every day and, and goes through um, all the media, uh, like news articles and stuff that are about him, which isn't uncommon, you know, 
Obama didn't act, Bush does it, things like that, because, you know, they want to stay on top of, you know, what the media is saying. Um, but, you know, they, he's famous for them distilling it into all these sorts of positive, you know, reoccur- reassuring things because he needs to be controlled and pat on the back all the time. But, but what it means is that they definitely have a subscription to Boston Globe. <laughs> and, you know, my name definitely came up among the White House staff as they're going through because, you know, I was interviewed at length about it. And that's just weird. Like, that's just the most, like, I'm not bragging about that. Like, what, what kind of weird, <laughs> bizarro world um, do we live in where people are, I don't know, people able to annoy the president that much? Or, or people are, you know, personal opinions of random nobodies like me matter that much to the most powerful man in the world? Like, that's just, it doesn't make any sense. And it's, it's very weird. And I will also be printing off that. Um, Twitter page where it says I'm blocked and hanging that on my wall and creating business cards and handing them out to everyone else. So, yeah. Well, you, you can't be too much of a nobody. I mean, you went from an interview with the Boston Globe to an interview with CBF Podcast. I mean, it's clearly, this is clearly <laughs> the next step up. Well, um, Man, yeah, no. For for, for for those that want to stay connected with Zach, uh, of course, you can follow him on Twitter. Uh, that's Zach Hunt. And be sure you do two A's uh, with the Zach and then ZachHunt.net. Uh, Zach, thanks so much for uh, for joining us and engaging us in the conversation today. Thanks for having me, man. It was, it was a blast. I really appreciate it. Before we let you go, we need to tell you about ChurchWorks. ChurchWorks is a three-day event for all practitioners of education and spiritual formation in a congregational setting. ChurchWorks creates a space for renewal and ministry through practices of creativity, community, and worship. To teach the people of God, educators need a place to be equipped, to be inspired, and to be renewed. Church Perks will take place in San Antonio, Texas at Trinity Baptist Church, February 26th through the 28th. Visit cbf.net backslash cw backslash churchworks for more details. As we let you go, we want to thank you, the listeners, for joining these conversations twice a month. If you have authors, practitioners, or ministers that you would love to feature in one of our podcasts, shoot me an email at ahale at cbf.net. We also want to thank the School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University, as well as ChurchWorks for sponsoring today's episode. Visit cbf.net for more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship.